Hello and welcome back to the Dyson House podcast by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Tom Ackhurst. Conflict between India and Pakistan over Kashmir has existed since independence from British rule in 1947. They both claim exclusive sovereignty over the territory, but have each only exercised partial control, meeting at a ceasefire line maintained since 1949. In the decades since, thousands have died through four Indo-Pakistani wars over Kashmir, and the small border region has become the most heavily militarised territory in the world. In a stunning move last August, the Indian government stripped its Kashmiri territory of the autonomy it had enjoyed for decades, leading to a swift response from Pakistan and concern among Kashmiris. Tensions have been laid bare, but while Pakistan protests at the UN, Kashmiris are stuck between two nuclear powers, with little political voice and an uncertain future. Today I'm joined by Dr. Pradeep Taneja, an expert in Indian and Chinese politics from the University of Melbourne, and a fellow of the Australia India Institute. Thanks for joining me, Pradeep. Hi, Tom. So just to begin, could you give us a quick glance at your career in Indian politics? Okay, well, I've been studying Asia for more than 30 years now. I lived in China. I grew up in India, then I lived in China for a number of years in the 1980s. Then I came to Australia, did my PhD here at Griffith University in Queensland. And then um, I went back to China for a few more years after my PhD. So I've really been focusing on Chinese and Indian politics and their international relations for 30-something years. All right, so you've got quite a broad expertise in Indian and Chinese politics, but today I'd like to focus on the Kashmir issue, as I alluded to in the introduction. And it's a more specific territorial conflict between India and its Pakistani neighbour. And it's a conflict that has hit the headlines recently, but has actually been around for many decades, as I'm sure you'll have us know. So just to begin our conversation today, I'd like to start by asking... Where is Kashmir and who are the Kashmiris? Okay. Well, Kashmir is um, in the north of India. Um, It's a mountainous region. It's a Himalayan region. So it's a very beautiful region. Sometimes it's called the Switzerland of Asia, although there are many other claimants, including Nepal and Bhutan, who (laughs) see themselves as Switzerland of Asia. But Kashmir Valley, is it's it's a beautiful part of uh, the region. Kashmir was one of uh, 500 plus kingdoms when the British left India in 1947. So when the British left India, the country was divided into India and Pakistan. And most of the Muslim majority areas of the Indian subcontinent became part of Pakistan. And the rest uh, became or remained India. Uh, The Maharaja of Kashmir was reluctant. He did not want to be with either, and therefore he wanted to maintain you know, the, the independence for Kashmir. And soon it became apparent that that's unlikely to happen because in Pakistan there was a very strong sort of um, sense that uh, Kashmir was a Muslim majority uh, part of the region and therefore it should have been part of Pakistan. Um, so. Then in 1947, you know, soon after independence, we saw Pakistani uh, military, often in the guise of tribals, 
they started infiltrating into Kashmir, and in fact, uh, uh, the Maharaja of Kashmir was quite concerned about it, so much so that he asked the Indian government for help. And Prime Minister Nehru at the time of India said that he would be willing to offer you know, security, to offer help to Kashmir only if Kashmir acceded to India, you know, if Kashmir made a, made a decision and the, the Maharaja of Kashmir decided to accede to India, then the Indian military, of course, would be able to defend the territory. And, and that's exactly what happened. So the Maharaja of Kashmir signed an accession protocol with the Indian government, and Kashmir officially became part of India. But in the meantime, Pakistani you know, forces and the, the so-called tribals were already you know, deep inside Kashmiri territory. And eventually, it led to a war between India and Pakistan. And at the end of the war, uh, one-third of Kashmir was under Pakistani control and two-thirds under Indian control. Then uh, Prime Minister Nehru of India, in fact, took the issue to the United Nations, and he offered to have a plebiscite on condition that, there were a number of conditions, but the main condition was that Pakistani military will withdraw from Kashmir before a plebiscite could take place. Now, Pakistani military never withdrew, and a plebiscite never took place. And the, in 1971, at the end of the, uh, the Bangladesh war between India and Pakistan, there was an agreement between uh, the Prime Minister of India at the time, Indira Gandhi, and the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, in Shimla. Shimla is a city in India, the capital of Himachal Pradesh. They met in Shimla, and that agreement became known as the Shimla Agreement. And at the Shimla Agreement, it was decided that Kashmir and all other issues between India and Pakistan are bilateral issues, and therefore they should be resolved through bilateral discussions. Uh, Pakistan still tries to internationalize the issue, you know, and they, they keep appealing to China, the United States, or anyone else that will listen to them that they should intervene, that the international community should intervene and try and resolve this issue. Yeah, so you mentioned how at India's independence, the local monarchies or princely states had to determine whether to join the new Indian state or the Pakistani state, and how the Kashmiri Muharaja made the decision to remain neutral. So is, is Kashmir's current status as a disputed territory between India and Pakistan a result of that historical decision or a more complex question about Kashmiri identity, which perhaps doesn't connect to the Indian and Pakistani states? To understand Kashmir, I think we have to understand that Kashmir is really three parts. So uh, the, uh, if you look at the map of India and you look at the map of Kashmir, on the eastern end, eastern corner, you have Ladakh. Ladakh is a very big territory. And the population of Ladakh is more or less split between uh, Buddhists and Muslims. Then you have Jammu. Jammu region, more sort of plains. Jammu region is predominantly Hindu. It's the Kashmir Valley which is predominantly Muslim. So of the three, three regions of Kashmir, uh, the valley is the region which is predominantly Muslim. And really much of the dispute is about that valley also because you know, the, the areas that Pakistan controls is part of the valley and then there is a, a separate territory called Gilgit-Baltistan which is also controlled by Pakistan. So when we think of Kashmir, we need to think of it 
in terms of you know these three you know units within the territory okay so just looking back at that identity element of the question you mentioned the muslim hindu divide in kashmir and i'm wondering how important a role does that play in informing this conflict is it a tension that's been around for many years or just something that's emerged after india's independence in 1947 well, if you look at the history of the subcontinent, um, clearly there have been tensions between Hindus and Muslims, both before independence and after independence. And uh, they used to flare up more often you know, soon after independence in India, although you don't see that as much, those Hindu-Muslim tensions uh, you know, in, in, in the Republic of India anymore. Uh, but the subcontinent does have a history of these religious tensions. But Kashmir issue, I think, is, is not so much about religion. The Kashmir issue is more about identity. For India, Kashmir is also part of India's identity as a secular state. Although Kashmir was the only Muslim-majority state of India, but India has a very large Muslim population. In fact, South Asia as a whole, if you put together the population of uh, the Muslim population of South Asia, including Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, it's in fact the largest Muslim population in the world. So this subcontinent of South Asia has a long history of you know, having Hindus and Muslims coexisting. So it's not that Hindus and Muslims don't coexist. They have a long history of coexistence. So the question is not about Hindu-Muslim relations. It's really about a question of identity. For India, Kashmir became a symbol of its secularism in the sense that Kashmir was a Muslim-majority state, but it was part of Republic of India. It has been part of Republic of India. Uh, for Pakistan, it was more about you know, that Kashmir was a Muslim-majority area, and therefore it should have been part of Pakistan. Uh, remember that most of the states that became part of India, most of the princely states that became part of India or Pakistan did not have referenda. It was the rulers of those states who decided to sign up to one or the other. So it's not necessary that Kashmir should have had a plebiscite or a referendum. Right. You know? And because the Maharaja of Kashmir was a Hindu at the time, he, along with the support of many of his Muslim officials, Sheikh Abdullah, prominent among them, they decided to be part of India. Okay, so let's look at Indian identity. We've seen how in the Middle East, the colonial experience led to the drawing of boundaries and the demarcation of state lines that I guess were arbitrary or contrary to localized identities. I'm wondering whether India had a similar experience at all or whether the Indian state has been able to forge a coherent identity that people are more or less in agreement with? India's identity is, is fairly clear. I mean, India is, when India became independent, the leaders of India at the time, Prime Minister Nehru in particular, decided that India will remain a secular country, that India will be a secular country. It wouldn't be, even though the majority of the population of India was Hindu, but India will not become a Hindu nation. It will not become a Hindu state. And therefore, it was important for India's secular identity that people of all faiths and religions and all ethnicities should be able to live peacefully within the boundaries of India. So if you look at the geography of India, really those colonial boundaries were not such an important factor, except where the boundary between India and Pakistan was created. 
And that was clearly a very uh, crude effort on the part of the British, the so-called Boundary Commission, which was sent from London, to, to draw the boundary. It, it betrayed any understanding of, uh, of the religion uh, or, or you know, the, the religious, sorry, the inter-community relations among Hindus and Muslims. They simply decided, and they were in a bit of a hurry, so they drew this boundary, which became you know, uh, East Pakistan, West Pakistan, with India in the middle. And eventually, of course, East Pakistan becomes Bangladesh in 1971, and you're left with this boundary between India and Pakistan. And that boundary is um, essentially two parts. One is the border between India and Pakistan, and in Kashmir, you have the line of control. In 1972, it was decided that this will be called the line of control. Okay, so you mentioned that most um, subjects to those um, princely states back in 1947 were not given a, a referenda or an opportunity themselves to express yeah. which state to join. But today, Pakistan and India, they're signatories to the United Nations and, and its charter, which expresses the, the principle of national self-determination. And that says that people have the right to freely choose their international political status. Have Pakistan and India been in violation of international law by neglecting to offer Kashmiris an opportunity to freely determine their political destiny? Well, because the choice was never between, if you look at, if you go back to the United Nations resolutions, United Nations resolutions were about choosing between India and Pakistan. You know, that a, a plebiscite should be held uh, subject to those conditions that I mentioned before. And if those conditions were met, then there should be a plebiscite to decide whether Kashmiri people wanted to be with you know, part of India or part of uh, uh, Pakistan. The reality is that today, uh, in fact, the majority of those Kashmiri people, actually, if you were given, if they were given an option today, I think, I suspect the majority of them would actually choose to call for independence. Mm. But that's not an option. That's not an option even Pakistan is willing to entertain. Because even though the Pakistani government talks about azadi or, or freedom for Kashmir, freedom doesn't mean independence. Freedom for Pakistan, freedom for Kashmiris for Pakistan means being part of Pakistan. But that's not necessarily the choice that the Kashmiris would make. I mean, they, they may be a, a minority who might you know, make that choice. But the fact is, that those uh, decisions, you know, the resolutions of the United Nations, they, they were superseded by an agreement between India and Pakistan in 1972, you know, the Shimla Agreement, mm -hmm. and under which the India and Pakistan are to resolve this issue bilaterally. So how do you feel about Pakistan's efforts to take the issue to the United Nations Security Council recently, given that Shimla Agreement, which was to resolve it bilaterally between India and Pakistan? If you look at it from the Pakistani point of view, they think that by bringing in you know, third party, outside party, whether it's the United States or China or even the United Nations, that they, they would be able to get what they want, uh, it regard, disregarding the fact that there is an agreement to resolve these issues bilaterally. India has engaged with Pakistan. So there has been, there was, for example, this so-called composite dialogue between India and Pakistan, where the two sides did meet. And India has said that India is willing to talk about all issues, including Kashmir with Pakistan. But Indian government position is that we cannot talk about Kashmir, we cannot talk about the border without, you know, sorry, we cannot talk about, you know, 
Kashmir and, and other disputes between India and Pakistan, while Pakistan is supporting terrorist activities in India or against Indian interests. And they have been, as you are aware, there have been a series of attacks on India, which have been claimed by Pakistan-based militant or terrorist organizations. So India's position is that we are willing to talk to Pakistan. We're willing to talk about anything. But we cannot talk while these terrorist acts are taking place. So if Pakistan were to control these uh, groups, and even many of these groups are in fact are proscribed by the United Nations also, mm -hmm. and by the United States government. So Indian position is that if we are to, to negotiate, if we are to talk about these issues, then terrorism must stop. Mm, well, we saw a terrorist attack in February in Kashmir that killed some 40 people, and a Pakistani Islamist group claimed responsibility. So do you think Pakistan's doing enough to address its connection to terrorism in Kashmir? Pakistan has used these you know, militant or terrorist organizations that are based in Pakistan, mainly in southern Punjab. They've used them as an instrument of state policy. Pakistan military has used them for a very long time, for at least three decades. They've used these groups, they have cultivated them, they've used them against Indian interests. And, and they are not about to give up you know, uh, control over these groups. So these are funded by, they are trained by the, by the Pakistani military, and we are not going to see a, a, a real you know, dialogue between India and Pakistan over Kashmir, over all the other bilateral issues, unless terrorism stops. And I don't see the prospect of that happening anytime soon. Let's look more closely inside Kashmir now. And obviously the issue of recent controversy has been India's revoking of Article 370, which was the provision that gave Kashmir some substantial autonomy in terms of self, its self-government. So I just want to get an idea of what did that autonomy look like and how did it function as to, in terms of a political system inside Kashmir itself? Well, Kashmir has been uh, a state of India since Kashmir acceded to India. Uh, and as part of the agreement between the Maharaja of Kashmir and the Indian government, uh, that accession protocol you know, had certain conditions. And those conditions were then incorporated into the Indian constitution. So Article 370 of the Indian constitution was a result. It was not something which was just invented by the Prime Minister of India at the time. It was, it was a reflection of um, of the agreement between the Indian government and the Maharaja of Kashmir. And part of that agreement was a degree of autonomy. In other words, uh, the Kashmir will retain its autonomy except in areas, and there were, I think, three areas, including you know, in foreign policy, security, and communication. In all other areas, Kashmir would retain a degree of autonomy. Part of the problem, part of the reason why over the last 30 years, because remember the first 30 years wasn't that much of a problem. Over the last 30 years, since the late 1980s, for a number of factors, uh, some internal, some external, uh, Kashmiris have felt a sense of you know, alienation. The autonomy which was guaranteed under Article 370 and 35A, which provides some other you know, security, so, some other types of autonomy, uh, a succession of Indian governments, national governments, undermined the autonomy, which was implicit in Article 370. Uh, they were, Kashmir has had elections, a democratically elected government, 
and then it's alternated between you know presidential rule or the governors you know assuming power uh, by by sacking a elected government so that erosion of autonomy by succession of indian governments created a sense of alienation and that sense of alienation was exploited by pakistan by supporting secessionist you know and militant activity within, uh, particularly within the Kashmir Valley. Well, the scrapping of Article 370 has also given Indians more access to Kashmir. They can now buy property, apply for scholarships and government jobs in the region. Is this part of a coordinated campaign to alter Kashmir's demographic to suit India's claims to sovereignty? Remember that the Indian government, the BJP-led government at the centre in New Delhi, they had it in their manifesto in 2014 and then again in 2019, you know, the elections earlier this year, that if they get elected, they will abrogate Article 370. And that's been their longstanding demand. It's something which they have told their, their members and their supporters that if they get elected, they will abrogate it. So in a sense, it wasn't a surprise that they made this decision soon after winning the second election in, you know, earlier this year, they decided to abrogate it. But the process, of course, the way they went about doing it has created you know, a, a, a degree of angst amongst the Kashmiris and, in fact, among many people within India. And the process, of course, was that they did it overnight through a decree signed by the President of India and then going to the parliament and getting both houses of parliament to actually approve it. The Article 370 itself contained a clause that the President of India had the power to abrogate um, Article 370, but subject to the consent of the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. Now, that Constituent Assembly ceased to exist in the 1950s, and it was replaced by the Legislative Assembly, you know, the State Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. But at the time the Modi government made the decision to abrogate Article 370, the Legislative Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir had already been dismissed. And therefore, there was no, no elected representative body in Jammu and Kashmir to give its consent. And the Indian government now argues that the, since the president uh, has the power and therefore, and since there is no elected in a representative government there, and therefore president has the right to, 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 to abrogate Article 370. And that process, in my opinion, is undemocratic. And I think, I think that is what is causing, I mean, now there are, of course, legal disputes because there are the political parties from Jammu and Kashmir have gone to, uh, to the Supreme Court of India. So now it's also before the court. And, and the court, of course, the Supreme Court will determine the legality of the abrogation of Article 370. But that's become a big issue. You know, so the, obviously there is a lot of technical detail uh, in it, but the Supreme Court will decide the legality of it. Yeah, and what, are, what is the Indian central government's intentions in revoking that Article 370? Well, the Home Minister Amit Shah and Prime Minister Narendra Modi have both said that this is about uh, bringing more development to Jammu and Kashmir. They say that Jammu and Kashmir has in fact suffered as a result of the 
you know, the, the existence of Article 370, that Article 370 and 35A, which was brought in a few years after the Indian Constitution was promulgated, that these articles or these provisions of the Indian Constitutions have not allowed for Kashmir to develop economically. So, for example, Indian companies have not been able to invest significantly in Kashmir. Indian entrepreneurs have not been able to invest in Kashmir because they can't own property in Kashmir. And foreign investors, too, have been reluctant to invest in Jammu and Kashmir. So they're saying that this decision would pave the way for private sector educational institutions to be open, private sector from India and foreign companies to come and invest in Jammu and Kashmir. And therefore, the argument is that this would lead to better living conditions, better you know, living standards for the people of Jammu and Kashmir. And, and also it means that the Indian government would be able to build more you know, better uh, uh, physical infrastructure in Jammu and Kashmir. So that's the official you know, Indian government position. Mm -hmm. That This is all about making sure Kashmir develops and Kashmiri people have a lot of opportunities. And the argument is that all those young people who you know, pelt stones at the Indian security forces, who feel alienated is because of unemployment. That because there's not been you know, uh, there's not been, you know, significant economic development in Kashmir, and therefore, you know, these people are alienated because they are unemployed. And we'll create uh, industrialization, we'll bring in investment, and that would lead to full employment, and Kashmiri youth will find new opportunities. It'll wean them away from, from the kind of militancy we've seen over the last 30 years. So that's the official argument. And now that Kashmir is under the direct constituency of the uh, central government in India. Do you think Kashmiris have faith in that system to better their their ambitions and hopes for the future? Well, it's if you look at the way the Kashmiri people have reacted to it, I mean, given that the Indian government imposed restrictions on, on communications, on the internet, telephone, many of the, the senior leaders of the Kashmiri political parties were arrested uh, before you know, the decision was announced, we haven't really seen full reaction from the Kashmiri people. There have been a few street protests in, a, in Srinagar, but we haven't seen how Kashmiri people have reacted to it. A limited number of Kashmiri people who've had access to the internet on social media, on Twitter, they have expressed their, their dissatisfaction you know, and, and disillusionment. Uh, and and I, I suspect that once these restrictions are lifted, restrictions on, on telephone, mobile telephones, and internet, uh, we're going to see more you know, discontent in Kashmir. Now, the, it will depend on the, the ability of the Indian government to, to communicate, to, to, to negotiate with the Kashmiri politicians and leaders. Because the Prime Minister has said that he is willing to, to approach the Kashmiri people directly, to, deal directly with the Kashmiri people. So part of this argument is that Kashmiri politicians, say, uh, the Indian government says that there is a handful of political families, political dynasties, who have uh, monopolized political power. And many of them, the argument goes, are corrupt. And therefore, Kashmir has not seen the opportunity that it should have seen. And therefore, the Indian government would now engage with the Kashmiri people directly, with the Kashmiri civil society directly, and eventually things will improve. But I guess the time will tell. It's easy to forget that there's a third state laying claim to areas of Kashmir and China. Does China maintain an interest in 
in Kashmir and particularly in, in the evolution of this conflict between India and Pakistan? China's um, uh, kind of interest in Kashmir goes back to two regions in particular, two areas in particular. One is an area of Ladakh called Aksai Chin, which is uh, controlled by China, but claimed by India that it was part of you know, the, uh, the kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir. So China has an interest there that it has a territorial dispute with India, which you know, relates to part of Kashmir. Now, of course, Ladakh will become a separate union territory, but, but that is one area, part of the old kingdom, you know, Jammu, kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, the other is a territory more than 2,000 square kilometers in the north, which was ceded by Pakistan so territory which was part of the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, which was ceded by Pakistan in 1963 to China, which of course India says that Pakistan had no right to, to cede the territory because it didn't belong to Pakistan. So there are two part, two areas in Kashmir where China is in fact in control of territory. How does the Kashmir issue play into broader geopolitical tensions between India and China? Kashmir has not been a major issue, apart from the territorial dispute. You know. So there are two main, um, you know, two main parcels of land which are disputed between India and China. There are lots of little ones, but two main ones. One is Aksai Chin area, which is part of the old kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir, and therefore part of Ladakh. And the other one is the, in the eastern sector, the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh, which China claims that it's part of Tibet. They call it Southern Tibet or South Tibet. So these are the two main areas. So because a big part of the territorial dispute between India and China relates to Aksai Chin, therefore China becomes in a, a, in a, a, a relevant party in this yeah. dispute. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Pradeep, and offering your expert insight into this evolving conflict. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.